Hey everyone, and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my lovely wife, as always, the book lover herself, Liberty. We're a married couple with different interests, and we try to bring each other into our hobbies by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. And today is Liberty's opportunity to force books up on me. Well, that just sounds aggressive. Yeah, we're just following up with the aggression you put out in the last episode. In the book world this week, we've got a couple adaptations. Interesting. Seems like we always have one. It's because nobody's creative anymore beyond books. Since books are my main form of media, I don't mind that as much. Right. Sabrina Carpenter is set to star in the upcoming adaptation of Marina Gessner's The Distance From Me to You. Carpenter is also set to executive produce the film along with Danielle Fischel and Stan Spry. Tiffany Paulson will work as a screenwriter on the film, and the company New Line is in the process of developing the adaptation for HBO Max. Seems like everything's being picked up by HBO Max lately. For the most part, it seems like. The novel centers on two teens who meet and fall in love while on the Appalachian Trail. McKenna is hiking the trail for a chance to prove to everyone who doubts her that she can do it. Sam seems to be on the trail in an effort to escape an abusive family. However, their love story takes an unexpected turn when the teens accidentally go off trail and find themselves struggling to survive the wild. Sounds good. So it's like a romance, but it's also a survival story. That's interesting. I just hope they don't try to turn it into like a horror story because I feel like that's a very easy way to take getting lost in the woods. Yeah, you very easily could switch it over to something like that, like without even kind of trying. But I haven't read this one, so I couldn't say for sure that it's not already a horror in there somewhere. It's true. I've never read it either. But what is probably the biggest news of the week actually came out on Saturday. Okay. Deadline is reporting that Hugo Award-winning sci-fi slash fantasy author N.K. Jemisin is adapting her Broken Earth series for Sony's TriStar Pictures. This is a major series in the book community, so I think a lot of people are going to be really excited for this one. The first book in the series, The Fifth Season, introduces readers to the harsh continent of the stillness, a land familiar with catastrophe as it spits out ash that blocks the sun. Interesting. Each book in the Broken Earth trilogy was nominated for and won the Hugo Award for Best Novel, which made Jemison the first author to win three years in a row, and also the first to win for all books in a trilogy. Yeah, that's that means it's pretty intense. Like, it's super good then, yeah. obviously. There are currently no further details available. This is completely brand new information as of Saturday afternoon. So a lot of people will be excited for this one. I have not read this series, but now there's going to be something coming out about it, so I kind of feel like I should. And this next piece of news involves a French author, so I'm probably going to say their name wrong. Just putting it out there. It would only be worse if I was the one attempting it. So if anything, it's going to be an improvement. David Diop, a French author, has won the 2021 International Booker Prize for his second novel, At Night All Blood is Black, alongside his translator, Anna Moscovacus whose name I messed up even worse than the other person's. Listen, the Diop one probably wasn't too complicated, but that second one. Yeah. 
I can see where I could struggle with that one. The author is the first French author to ever win this award. The book was originally written in 2018 and received many accolades, but it wasn't until 2020 that he was eligible for the International Booker Prize when it was translated into English. The story follows Alpha, a Sinol... I knew I was going to mess this one up. He's, <laughs> he's Senegalese from Senegal. Okay. Senegalese. Sure. All right. We'll go with Senegalese. your pronunciation. As he fights with the French army during World War One. Okay. When his friend is severely injured in battle, he must choose whether or not to spare his friend the agony of dying a slow death. The decision becomes maddening, and when his friend eventually does pass, things get even worse for him. In an attempt to avenge his friend's death, our protagonist takes it upon himself to sneak past enemy lines and, quote, murder a blue-eyed German soldier each night, which I feel like you could do that forever. As a blue-eyed German, I feel a little offended, but at the same time, I kind of understand that they were the bad guys in this situation. But instead of becoming a hero of the war, he is painted out to be a sorcerer whose demons have gotten the best of him. The award is one of the most coveted awards in writing. Winning authors are awarded international recognition and press that encourages readers all over the globe to read the winning novel. Past winners include Margaret Atwood, Bernadine Evaristo, and Douglas Stewart. Not like those are big names at all. Like, originally I saw this and I wasn't going to talk about it because I'm like, that just sounds like a super emo title at night, all the blood is black or whatever. And then reading it, I'm like, oh, it's a historical fiction. I don't know that I really care because I don't like historical fiction. But then it turns out this guy is slowly going insane and that it might be fantastical and it might just be a crazy person. I think I would be definitely somebody that would enjoy this book. You, on the other hand... It, it depends on where it goes. It, it could land well or it could go very poorly. It just kind of depends. But I definitely enjoy the title of this book. But the next piece of news, I don't know how to feel about it, so we'll see. The author, Jeanette Winterson, has set fire to a pile of her newly republished books after saying that she, quote, hated the cozy little domestic blurbs on them. If it makes you feel any better, I literally saw this in actual news. It didn't just make book news. Right. And I was like, maybe I should write about that in book news. And I'm like, nah, Liberty will cover it. Yeah. Because if it made normal news, it definitely was going to make book news. In a tweet on Friday night, she wrote, Absolutely hated the cozy little domestic blurbs on my new cover. Turned me into women's fiction of the worst kind. Nothing playful or strange or the ahead-of-the-time stuff that's in there, so I set them on fire. First of all, she incorrectly wrote women's fiction so that it dumbs down women's fiction to begin with. I was going to give you second and third of all, but I talk about it later in my notes, so I'll just continue. <laughs> Winterson's works explore love, gender, and sexual identity, which were ahead of the time for when they were originally published between 1987 and 2000. The author said that the publishers are fixing the problem, but that she didn't want to keep these copies. Most of them went to charity, but she had a, quote, symbolic burning to raise her spirits. And in my notes, I said that I have less of an issue with her burning her own books and more with the way she speaks so poorly of women's fiction. 
which is a genre that was originally created due to misogyny in the book publishing industry, but now is a genre that helps keep publishing as a whole profitable because it's a well-sold genre. Yeah. And I think the way that she looks down on women's fiction or the women who write for that genre is worse than just not liking decisions made by her publishers. Got it. Though there have been many authors who have said that Winterson would have been sent the blurbs to approve or demand a change on before the books had even gotten to the stage where they were printed. I'm really hoping that the email actually comes out from the publisher or something in order to kind of show people that the email didn't end up lost or in their spam filter or whatever, but that she actually approved of this before they were printed right. and that this was all just a PR stunt. But I don't think the publisher will actually do that because they have to approve her doing a PR stunt. I was going to say, secondly, it is a PR stunt, which is going to sell probably more books because of that. So I don't know. I, I doubt that they would actually come out with whatever it is of her approving that, but like, Many authors have said, no, you have to approve of the blur before the book's printed, so there's BS. Yeah. You're just trying to seem like an edgy older author in order to bring in, like, a younger audience to her older works. Yeah, that's kind of funny. So, like, I honestly don't know how to feel about it because, like, I feel like it's your crap. You can do what you want with it. If you want to burn them, go ahead. But I also feel like she's lying, Clearly. And that this is all a PR stunt, which I don't approve of. Right. So, the two actions together I don't approve of. Yeah, it seems like it could be a little messy some way. A lot of her stuff, like reading through the blurbs on Goodreads for her books, it's like, yeah, this is actually way ahead of its time. And, like, if you're someone who likes reading more backlist titles, I feel like this would definitely be something... That could be viewed credibly through a 2021 lens. Which is but, hard to do considering she's been writing them since like the 80s. Yeah. So, But at the same time, I'm not going to read from an author who will lie to people just as a PR stunt. Not to say your work is bad or there's anything in there that is like harmful, but like your behavior is stupid. Right. So I don't know. But that was the last of the book news for the week. As for the tag, I found a tag that we haven't done yet which is kind of surprising because a lot of the same tags just get recirculated over time. Yeah. But it's the Friends book tag. So it's got a character from Friends and, like, how they are in the show and then some sort of book question that relates to that. So the first question is about Ross, a character who is seemingly harmless but is actually problematic. So the question is, name a book that you had problems with. Oh, I thought I was actually going to look for a character, and I was like, I've got no. this. No. You have a seemingly harmless character that's problematic? Yeah, to an extent. I feel like Hermione's kind of like that, where she doesn't come off that harmful necessarily, but like she could definitely wreck some people if she needed to. But that's not problematic. You know what problematic is. But she could become a problematic for people if she wanted to. She could be a problem. She's not problematic. Yeah. But a book that I had problems with, that I had issues with, is The Past by Tessa Hadley, which is a book your mother gave me for Christmas. It's a somewhat recent read, so that's probably why that it's the one that pops into my head. It's like stuck in your brain right now. But there were issues about consent and like weird questions about incest. It's like immediate no-no. And 
neither one of these things were really addressed in the book. You just vaguely saw them from like the corner of your eye as you were reading. That's awful. So the whole idea of the book is that a family is taking a final vacation in the English countryside to their vacation house before they decide to sell it or not. But they never talk about the house or what they're going to do with it. It's just people behaving weirdly. And you would think that premise alone is not like problematic, but the things that are happening and aren't addressed are problematic. Right. Do you have a book that you have a problem with? Not really. I haven't really experienced one where I'm like, man, this is just an issue. What I'm hearing is I'm cultivating a great selection for you to read as we are going <laughs> through the podcast. <laughs> I, I feel like you're not being very humble, but that's quite the brag you got going there for yourself. Tell me I'm wrong. I can't. I okay. can't. So, so far it has been pretty good. All right. And at some point, you know, you're going to have to read Hatchet and that will be my recommendation. So we'll and see how I well that works out. I will rate it 1.5 stars. It will not be a 1.5 star. We'll see. It won't. I will bet you on that. Uh, okay. A cookie. I bet you a cookie. I'll rate it 1.5. So if you win, I make you a cookie. And if you win, you make me a cookie. Because if that's the case, I've got the better end of the deal. I think an edible cookie has to be given to the person who wins. <laughs> got it. Got it. Let's For- go to like a bakery or something. <laughs> For the Monica prompt, neat and tidy is her characteristic. So Fact. what is a book or series that ends in a satisfying way for you? It doesn't have to be a series, but that's an option. I don't know. I feel like Harry Potter pretty much closes off where you want it. Like there's things that I know people are like, I want more of this, but like. That for the epilogue most, though. Yeah, the epilogue is stupid. And no. and I honestly think it should have never been written, but. Like, there, sh- there should have been something else to come after if they were really concerned about something like that. Well, I feel like what happened when she went to finish book seven is that her publishers went, people have spent, like, a decade with these characters. We've got to wrap this up. They, they need to know what happens to the characters after the Battle of Hogwarts. And so she wrote an epilogue, and it was garbage. Yeah. And that was her descent into madness. Yeah. But otherwise, Harry Potter does wrap up pretty well. Yeah. For me, I said the Throne of Glass series was wrapped up really well by Sarah J. Mass. Kingdom of Ash was a really satisfying ending to the series. It's good. But I know she's a really popular author, but a lot of people discount her books because they think it's like mostly face smut, which it's not. That's her other series. <laughs> this one is actually... She's like, she did write a series like that. But this isn't the one we're talking about right <laughs> but now. But the Throne of Glass series, like, you go on such a journey with these characters, and I feel like the series was meant to be one thing, but as she was going, it became something else. And I feel like Kingdom of Ash finishes in a really nice way that wraps up where it started and where it ended up going. So I feel like that's a pretty good answer for that question. Yeah. For the character of Chandler, his characteristics are funny and relatable name a book that is a firm favorite for you um you might have a problem with this i think because i don't really like i don't think i found that book yet that's like the favorite no matter what but what's a favorite out of what you've read so far i'd probably go with like vicious i feel like i i feel like i could read that at any time and be happy yeah like and not be like man this book sucked or this book was just Blah. It was just so well written. Yeah. I feel like like there are books that just kind of get written. And I feel like this one was work. Like she had to put in a lot of time and dedication to 
the timeline and the characters, and I feel like she pulls it off really well and vicious. Yeah, I can totally agree with that. But that wasn't my answer, though it could have been my answer. But the answer I went with when I wrote my notes was the Renegade series by Marissa Meyer. I think it does a really good job of creating a different type of superheroes in an era where everyone is just sort of sick and tired of superheroes to a degree. Yeah. And it has a different type of superhero and villain dynamic that I really enjoyed. And it's showing you that both sides kind of have some morally great characters. And, like, even though there's one side that you know logically you're supposed to root for because they're the good guys, you still end up oftentimes on the side of the bad guys. And it's like, is something wrong with my moral compass? What is happening? (laughs) And as we know, I love any time that I question my morals and what is wrong with me. Right. So I really like that series. For Phoebe's character, her traits are reliable and friendly. Who is an author you feel like you can always rely on? I feel like you haven't read a lot from the same author. I I haven't, and I don't think that I'm qualified to really speak on the subject of this. Like, I wish I had somebody to, like, phone a friend and put somebody on the podcast (laughs) right now and just be like, you can answer this question. I know you're capable. Like, hey, dude, what's an author you can always rely on? Tell it to the podcast. The reality is, like, you know who I would call. I would probably call Fullen just because, like, I know he's as big of a book nerd as you are. So it would be probably an easy decision for him to make. But at the same time, if I put him on the spot, who knows? Maybe he wouldn't have an answer. Right. Well, for me, I've got an author that I've pretty much read every book that they've published. Yeah. I think I'd have to double check Goodreads. But it's Casey West. I think now, though, I'm getting to the point where it's a little young for me because it's a YA contemporary, but at the same time, I know that I can always pick up one of her books and have a good time reading it. Like, I will never pick up a Casey West and be like, one star, this is the worst. (laughs) So I feel like that's pretty reliable when it comes to books. I've definitely got authors where it's sort of hit or miss, and so, like, I could pick up their book and either I'm going to love it or I'm going to hate it. But Casey West is just, no matter what, I'm going to have a good time. Three or more stars every time for Casey West. That's great. But I also feel like it took me a long time to find an author like that for me. I feel like it should realistically take you time to do that. It shouldn't be just like, yep, this is it. Like I, I know found the one. I know there's a lot of people out there who are like crazy about Sanderson. So like I feel like that would probably be an easy answer for a lot of people. But at the same time, like Sanderson writes a lot of different stuff. Well, mostly he does fantasy. He also does some sci-fi, but... At the same time, a lot of his worlds are, like, interconnected. So I feel like if I picked up one of the series and didn't like it, I'd have to deal with, like, the repercussions of not enjoying the world or the characters or whatever, even when I move to other series. Yeah. But I have read the first two books in his YA sci-fi series, Skyward, and the next book comes out later this year. And, like, for both of those, I had a good time. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. I don't appreciate the U.S. covers. I think they're garbage, but that's not on him. (laughs) I don't think Sanderson could ever be that for me. For Rachel's character, they say that she grows on you over time. So what is a book or book series that has grown on you over time? Um, So when I was a kid, I started reading the Harry Potter series and never kind of got through it. And I felt like I almost got like stuck on the same situation I was in previously with it but I continue to kind of push through it and I think it's grown on me a little bit through to the ending because 
prior to this podcast, I had never read all the way through Harry Potter, which was like a sin in your your eyes. So I'm glad I got through that finally. Yeah. I said the book The Last House Guest by Megan Miranda. It's a book that I didn't love while reading it. It was just okay. But then by the time the twist happened at the end, I was having a much better time and enjoying it more. I still ended up rating it three stars because the twist happened so close to the end of the book. But that last little bit of the book is like five star worthy. It's just it was bogged down by like a two and a half star worthy rest of the book. To get there. I feel like that would be one that I actually enjoy more the second time. I read it because I would have that information in the back of my head about the end of the book the whole time I'm reading. For the character of Joey, what is a book that looks good on the outside? A book that's cover is prettier than its contents. Man, because I was like, pretty on the outside, that's really easy. And then you're like, better than, better than, the, than, inside. than the inside. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's tough. I, I actually had a hard time with this. Because like I was totally going to be like this version of the hatchet that we got that was leather bound is beautiful i think it's really cool but then when you said the content on the inside i'm like i actually like the book so yeah. i'm like i can't say that i don't know that i have one like that yet at least i i really like a lot of the covers i think for you like most recently reading the peter pan like you felt kind of weird about it but i, I did not write that but i mean it the Mina the Lima edition of peter pan is effing gorgeous like if you haven't looked at it you definitely should but We'll discuss later how I felt about reading Peter Pan. <laughs> I actually said Cruel Beauty by Rosamund Hodge. It's a Beauty and the Beast retelling. It's a little older for the genre. And it has a girl running down like this beautiful staircase and there are roses on the cover. But it was just a little too weird for me. And like I'm the person saying that. So it's pretty weird. Yeah. I ended up rating it two stars, but the cover is really pretty. For the character of Gunther. I was going to be like, where do we go from here? <laughs> their characterization of Gunther is always there, always ignored. What's a book you've had on your TBR forever? I don't really have a TBR yet. Well, you don't have a physical TBR, but I feel like you have books that you want to read. Yeah, I, I still, like, and I start it all the time, is some of the Tom Clancy books that I have. I have yeah. digital versions of them. And I'll start them, but, like, I realize, man, this is dense, and I don't really have the time to sit there and read it. Yeah. So, like, I don't don't get into it that much. And I feel like his writing style as a whole, too, is very much styled after, like, a lot of details. Okay. And, and because if you don't have them, things are confusing. So, like, I don't know. His, his writing style slows me down a lot and in yeah. turn stays on my TBR for a long time. For me, I actually had trouble answering this question as well because I don't have a lot of these anymore because I started my Read It or Leave It project in January, which was the eight oldest books on my TBR. I had to read them this year or they were automatically getting kicked off my physical TBR. So I technically only have three of those books left. And I think out of those three, The Girl of Fire and Thorns by Ray Carson is actually the oldest one. It's been on my TBR longer than the other two. But I don't remember buying this book. I don't know when I bought it. I don't know where I bought it. I know I was in California at some point. So it was many years ago. Yeah. So that was my answer. And then for the last one, they have Carol and Susan. And the characterization of the couple is keeping it diverse. What's an LGBT plus book you love or hate or want to read? So any of those 
just diverse? I don't know. And that makes me sound like an awful human being, but I haven't had a really fair share of that yet, I don't think. I feel like a lot of people don't know what is or isn't diverse until they read it because they aren't so into the book community where that's a common discussion. I'm not. I'm not in tune to it. So, like, that makes it a lot harder for me, I guess, in that instance. Yeah. But I said that I want to read Winter's Orbit, which has come out somewhat recently. It's by Everina Maxwell. From what I've heard people say, it has a male-male romance in it, but I don't know until I read it, obviously. But it's set in a sci-fi world, and it's supposed to be political. One of my friends says that it's the Space Gaze book. So I assume there's diversity in there. At least a little bit, hopefully. But that was the friends tag. I made it. I survived. You survived. I had NA answers like what, twice in that one? Not so bad. It's better than usual. Better than sometimes. Yeah. But now we'll get into what I've been reading and we can finally discuss how I felt about Peter Pan. Oh my God. So I read Peter Pan by J.M. Barry in the Mina Lima edition. First of all, if you're going to read an older book, just do it in the Mina Lima edition. And even if you're having a bad time, it's still fun. Right. This was first published as a play in 1904 and then later published as a book. This is a children's classic that I ended up rating three stars. So it was okay, but it wasn't the best. I had to really try to realize that I am reading this story through a 2021 lens and that it was a lot different 120-ish years ago and that A lot of the things that I found offensive and misogynistic were indeed offensive and misogynistic, but what was happening at the time. But it's a story about a boy who refuses to grow up and the children who visit him in Neverland. I will say I now have a completely different understanding of Peter Pan as a character through the book versus the many different adaptations I have seen of Peter Pan, and I really don't like him. (laughs) I felt like he was pretty arrogant and forgetful and people just had to deal with the fact that he was super controlling and uncaring about his friends and the people who visited him. Like he was always really cocky and I did not enjoy Peter Pan as a character at all. And I found myself at times rooting for Captain Hook and I'm like, this feels so wrong. What is happening? (laughs) It's kind of funny, though, to be completely honest. I mean, there were times when Peter Pan wouldn't let people eat because if they did end up eating, they wouldn't fit in the door into their underground home anymore. And so he would make them not eat, so they stayed the same size. Yeah. And the only time he would let them eat is because otherwise they got too thin to fit in their specific door down to their home underground. And I was like, what is happening? Why is he controlling whether or not you can eat? And it's, like, It's definitely different than all the variations Disney's done. Yeah. The parents definitely behaved the way that children think parents are. Yeah. But not the way that parents actually should be, including hiring a dog to be their nanny, which, I mean, I, I think they almost always have a dog in the Peter Pan adaptations. Yeah. But I don't think I ever actually saw the dog as the nanny until I read the book. And maybe that was just my perception being wrong. But 
I think it had a little bit to do with that because I feel like there is a scene where in the movie the dog is actually like picking up one of the kids in its mouth and like carrying okay. it somewhere. So maybe. I don't remember that. I think I do remember the dog feeding one of the children in one of the adaptations I saw. But I was like, cool, you trained your dog to feed your baby. I didn't see it as like the dog being the nanny. Right, right. And like while the kids have disappeared, the dad lives in the dog crate. Because he feels like his, it's his fault that the kids disappeared. So that's like his punishment. It's supposed to be a pretty big dog, so it wouldn't be like that awful, I don't think. But, but like, like he lives in it pretty much 24-7. Yeah. And he only comes out for like his needs, his physical needs. And like the newspaper hears about it and he suddenly becomes like a hero of the town for dealing with the weight of what happened. And like it's weirder than I expected. <laughs> but... I actually enjoyed those aspects more than just how different Peter was and like how controlling and misogynistic in all of that he was because everyone's treatment of Wendy is horrible. Oh yeah. Like Wendy has to be their mother and take care of them and fix their clothes and feed them and make sure they take their medicine and like all this other stuff. I'm like, I'm pretty sure she's the same age as some of you MFers. Like, what is happening? So, like, this is, like, the first book that you've read that I have already read. Yeah. And the whole time you're just sitting there like, I can't believe this. And I'm like, sweetheart, it's in the book. You can believe it. It's there. Well, and I think Peter Pan was one of my favorite Disney characters growing up. Right. So, I think that might be why I'm so, like, offended by this book (laughs) but like this is the original work and i have to understand that that's peter and that's who peter is even if the adaptations i watched and enjoyed are different correct yeah but i did enjoy exploring neverland and i did enjoy the lost boys and where they lived and i thought there was some racist stuff with the indians there was for sure there was in the disney movie though too if you really go back and watch it yeah But this seemed a little more blatant. Yeah. And so there's all of this stuff that you have to think about when you're reading Peter Pan because it's sort of racist and it's sort of misogynistic, but it's also a thing of its time. But at the same time, that's not an excuse. So Well, they're not going to go in and rewrite a classic. Right. Like, honestly, if you go back in time to when this book was actually written, it was very common to have those things in the books. Right, and so you have to be able to look at it through this lens and be able to understand these aspects of the time and your time now and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Right. But even then, like, just talking about the characters and the plot and stuff like that, the characters I enjoyed were not ones I expected to enjoy. And, like, I liked Captain Hook... Smee was okay. I liked one of the other pirates more. I liked Tiger Lily, even though she was barely there. And I liked the, I think it was the twins in The Lost Boys. So, like, none of the main characters of Peter Pan were my favorite. Yeah. So that's why, overall, it got a three star for me. It was fun to read in the Mina Lima edition. Either way, it's got some beautiful artwork it's got some pop-ups and some stuff that you can open or spin or play with it's even got something you can tear out and like make a kite because they talk about a kite in the book at some point so when are we making this kite it's a very small kite you wouldn't be able to actually fly it oh that's disappointing but if you want to do it we can i don't know that i want to now it's gonna be just a small kite i thought it was gonna be like four or five pages folded up together or something like that and you just like kites no 
Because we know it's windy enough here in Texas to fly kites. Yes. But I'm going to be reading other classics later in the year for a different project. So I feel like I have to take like that mindset going into it later of like, you live in the here and now and what was acceptable then may not be acceptable now, but realize it was what it was. Right. But after that, I read Wild Card by Marie Lu, which is a lot more recent of a release that came out in 2018. So slightly more socially acceptable in today's world? (laughs) Maybe. It's a YA sci-fi novel. I rated this one four stars. It's book number two in the Warcross series. Amika Chen is torn between Hideo Tanaka and Zero in a war over control of the algorithm. And I actually liked this one more than the first book. I rated it four stars. I believe the first one I rated 3.75. So not a big difference, especially if you're one of the people who rounds up to the nearest whole star. But I thought that this one was more gritty than the first book. And while we spend less time in Warcross itself, less time in the game itself... I actually had a good time in in Mika's real world setting instead of being in the VR all the time. And I think they did a good job with, I'm trying to find the best way to explain because you've only read half of it. I feel like they do a good job with the other characters who get added to the story and making them well fleshed out characters despite having half as much time as some of the other characters. They do it really well in a very short amount of time, so... But I did feel like in the back half there were some things that happened that I'm like, okay, now you're just going too far, and that brought down my rating a little bit. But we'll talk about Wild Card later in this episode and the next episode, so we'll get into it. Stay tuned. And then the last thing that I read this past week, I didn't think I would get through the whole thing, but I did. Just barely under the wire. I read Blood Witch by Susan Dennard. This is a 2019 release and a new adult fantasy. I rated this one four stars in my first read. I think I would rate it four or 4.25 now since I've read the novella that comes before this one. Yeah. And I didn't in my first read. I just read the first, second, and third book and not the 2.5. But this is a reread for me before the next book comes out later this month. We follow Bloodwitch Adewan as he attempts to save the Carwin Monastery from raiders. And that is the best synopsis I can give you of the third book in a series. I can't really get into it more than that because that gives away stuff from the first couple of books. But that was a decent number of pages to read in a week. I was really surprised I got through all that. Yeah, I was going to say it's quite a lot to just power through. Luckily for you, Wild Card is kind of on the shorter side. Well, it's also a bit easier to read than Blood Witch. Blood Witch is kind of dense. And so, like, anytime I'm going to read that, I need to give myself, like, an extra day or possibly two to read because it's just so dense. As for what I plan on reading next, I actually kept changing my plans for next week over and over again because I have a lot of big books on my list to read this month, and I was originally going to read one of those, but I decided to read a couple of the shorter books on my list for the month, and then hopefully towards the end of the month I can get into the bigger books. But the first one is The Dating Dare by J.C. Lee. It is a NetGalley arc that I recently got approved for. It comes out on August 3rd, and technically it's book number two in the A Sweet Mess series, 
but it's a series of standalone adult romances. So I could read this one without reading the first one first, which is what I'm doing. In this one, Tara is surprised when a friendly game of truth or dare leads to an uncomplicated four-date arrangement with Seth. So it seems like it's going to be a cute adult romance, and it won't take me very long at all to read. Adult based on truth or dare? No, it's just in the adult age range. They're both adults. That play truth or dare. (laughs) I'm sorry. Well, I started this one last night. I only got about 40 pages in, and... Based on the way it opens, it actually makes sense for them to do that. Um, I was super confused. I'm like, I can't remember the last time I played Truth or Dare, maybe when I was in like junior high. They they do it as a Truth or Dare drinking game. So if you don't want to answer, you don't want to do the dare, you can do a shot. So it's a Truth or Drink. Got it. Truth, Dare, or Drink, because there are dare options. And basically, the main character is sad when her best friend gets married because they're both not old, but they're old enough to be like, well, shouldn't I be at that point in my life? Right. And my friend is, but I'm not. So she and the best man play truth, dare, or drink because they're both just kind of dealing with emotions from this wedding. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. But they're not planning on dating. They're just going on a few dates because he's about to leave the country for work She doesn't want to have a relationship right now, so we'll see where that goes. But it shouldn't take me long to read either way, just because contemporaries and romances are easier to read than, like, fantasy and sci-fi for me. Yeah. But then I will be reading a sci-fi after that. I'll be reading The Effort by Claire Holroyd, I believe is how you say her last name. This is technically a new release. The book came out in January of this year. It's a standalone adult sci-fi novel. In this one, when a research group discovers a comet is headed straight toward Earth, they'll try to pull a group together to save humanity or accept its ruin. It sounded really good. I haven't heard people talking about this one, but I don't read a ton of sci-fi. My preferred genre is like fantasy, dystopian, stuff like that. So we'll see how that goes. And then I'm going to pick up a Kindle book that I got either for free or really cheap on one of those emails that I get about cheap and free books, but it's The Stolen Kingdom by Beth Adazayed, maybe? It's a 2019 release and the first book in the Stolen Kingdom series. The series is a set of different retellings. This one is an Aladdin retelling where a neighboring king tries to force Princess Eri into a marriage in order to steal her kingdom. The only problem for him is her newly discovered jinn powers. Interesting. Out of the blue, like, I am now genie. Yeah. And it seems like it's going to be a desert fantasy, and I've noticed that I've enjoyed those lately, like The Wrath and the Dawn, The um, Rebel of the Sands, so, like, I feel like this will be up my alley. And it's also decently short. It's less than 300 pages, I believe. So I should be able to finish all three of those this week. But we can finally talk about Wild Card. You read... About half the book this past week. Yeah, I think it came out to be like 50 and some change percentage, like just very small amounts. 52, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, but boy, I'm glad I'm reading this book because I was irate with the way the last book ended. See, when I originally read Warcross, I was fine with that just being like the end of it because I, at the time, was so bogged down with other reading goals that I wasn't worried about leaving an open-ended series. But now that I'm reading it with you, I'm like, why would I just stop like that? 
Yeah, it's it's kind of offensive that that's the way the previous book ended. But we are starting the next book, Wild Card, with about a week out from the Warcross closing ceremonies. So it's happening right after Warcross ends, which is good, given the way that Warcross ends. Yeah. And now that the algorithm is in place, all of a sudden you have police stations being bogged down with the people turning themselves in for crimes that they've committed. But at the same time, you're starting to see suicide go up across the world and people are starting to kill themselves. Some people don't want to turn themselves in and they're just like, I'm done with this world. So yeah, it's kind of a bad statistic to be on the other end of that. Right. And it's pretty much an unforeseen consequence of the algorithm as far as I can tell so far. And we're seeing Amika meeting up with the Phoenix Riders at the Midnight Sense Bar where they watch a video conference where Hideo announces that since a cheat was used during the final of the Warcross games, they are going to have a rematch. Rematch. Between Phoenix Riders and Team Andromeda. Yeah. It's also when we get some of the statistics about the world. So Amika finds out from Tremaine that 98% of the world's population is now under the algorithm. Yeah. Which is insane. And the ones that aren't either have never really used the Neuralink, and so they're not connected, or the people with the beta lenses. They're the people that are using flip phones still, probably, let's be honest. But also the people with the beta lenses, like the champions for Warcross. Yeah. And they, I believe this also when they learn that there's a chance that, or there are rumors that, a patch is going to go through for the beta lenses so that they will also be under the algorithm later on. Yeah, the final match of the season after the championship. Like, the closing ceremonies, basically. Right. And then after that whole, like, powwow, she leaves the bar and is contacted by Zero. And Zero is telling Amika that she is now on the top of the list in the pirate's den for assassination. He warns her that there are some some assassins coming after her now, right now. Yeah, and like literally, no joke, as she's finishing up that conversation, things start to go down, start to go sideways very quickly. She's shot at in the alley that she's in when a girl comes out of nowhere to protect her from the assassins. And this girl ends up being one of my favorite characters from the book, like one of my favorite new characters from the book. She's growing on me as I go along as well. But Amika isn't sure if she should trust this girl, but ends up following her anyway. And like, I appreciate Amika being on her guard still and not just being like, you're saving me, we're best friends. Yeah. Well, you got to think like she's still not in a very good place with Zero's trust. So it's like, this is a person sent by Zero to protect me. Why Why would I trust her 110% yet? Right. Given everything that just happened in Warcross. On top of that, she kind of pulls some like crazy transporter style murders, like just killing people out of nowhere because they like light up red in her line of sight vision. Like, I'm like, that's dope. Could you imagine in real life if you were an assassin and you're like, these are the bad guys, the red dots here. Let me just go kill these people really quick. Like, I feel like that happens in video games, doesn't it? It can, yeah. yeah. Not always, though. Mm. But Amika finds out pretty quickly that this girl is Zero's personal, like, his own assassin that he has, and her name is Jax. And she finds out that Jax and Zero are part of a group named the Black Coats. Yeah. And, you know, if you know your tropes, you know that anyone being a black anything as uh, their group name, it's probably not going to be great. 
Not usually speaking. But when Amika admits that she doesn't trust Jax, Jax knocks her unconscious with a dart. I feel like it had more to do with it was easier to deal with her than it was for her to be playing 20 questions while they're possibly getting shot at. Right, but she just basically says that she doesn't trust her, and she's like, well, this will be easier this way. Yeah. Knocks her unconscious. But while Amika's drugged, she's driven to a hotel in the Omotisando district? I don't have enough, like, manga or any type of reading <laughs> background, so, like, I'm not... We're going to go with what this. I just said. Yeah, it sounds right. This is where we need, like, a third person <laughs> in the podcast to, like, correct the weird things that we have to say. Like, just be there to be like, uh, no, that's wrong. Yeah. But while she's drugged and driven to the hotel, she is trying to reach out and contact anyone she can, but her brain's just kind of scrambled and she's out of it. Right. And as they arrive, Jax shouts to someone to tell Zero that she's there, and then she's fully out. Yeah. And she loses, like, a day. Fun times. But she wakes up, messages her friends back as, like, I'm okay. Very vague. But she has an incoming message from Hideo when she wakes up, which she is very surprised by. She she drunk dialed him, basically. Well, like, drug dialed him. <laughs> she drugged dialed him. Well, she was under the influence of the dart. But it turns out that she did end up reaching out to someone when she was drugged. It was Hideo. So that's the last person, The last person she'd hoped she had reached out to, basically. But after the fight with Hideo, she hears from Jax, who lets her know that Zero's on her on his way up to meet her. And she ends up meeting with Zero, Jax, and this new person, Dr. Dana Taylor. Yeah. And they agree that Jax helping save Amika the other night is going to send a message to the people that she's with the Black Coats and she's not to be messed with. And Zero provides more security for her account, basically, yeah. just to make sure she stays safe. And both sides admit that they have a common goal to take down Neuralink's algorithm, but Amika is hesitant to help them because she feels like she isn't being given all the relevant information. And Zero says they can't do it without Amika. So Amika agrees to join them in taking down the algorithm, and Dr. Taylor and Jax leave. And when they do, she has a confrontation with Zero about where he's been and who he is because... As we found out in the last book, his data comes back as Sasuke Tanaka. Right. And, like, he looks just like his older brother and, like, what is going on? <laughs> but Zero is completely unwilling to give her information, so they move on to making a plan. And Zero says he's going to put a virus into the algorithm that will trigger a chain reaction to delete the algorithm completely and destroy the Neuralink itself. The only catch is that they have to do this from inside Hideo's personal account. And on the day of the closing ceremony, right when it connects the patch to all the beta lenses. So, like, it's two very specific things have to work together in order to get this virus on all the people's Neuralink. Right. Basically trying to not give them the opportunity of time to try to catch it yeah. and stop it. But that basically means that the Black Coats want Amika to cozy back up to Hideo in a way that is believable so that she can connect with him and insert the virus herself. Where, as she knows, just hit the self-destruct button all of, like, a day sooner. Yeah. So, it's like, fun times. She's pretty much certain that nothing's going to get her back into his good graces because their relationship just fell apart. It exploded, basically. Yeah. 
And Zero's talking about how the virus works, so he takes her into the dark world and links up with her. And when we go into the dark world, it's completely changed after what happened with the algorithm. Getting smaller and smaller, like tumbleweeds blowing along (laughs) type situation is what I got the vibe was. There are very few people. The world has completely emptied out, and the buildings and surroundings are like completely changed in order to protect itself and the people who are there. And they end up passing a stall that is currently auctioning off beta lenses for 50,000 notes per pair, I believe it was. Because it keeps you from turning yourself in, basically. I think it's so people can sell it in the real world for more money and protect other people. Yeah. But obviously, if they're in there buying them, they already have beta lenses because that's doing something illegal. Either that or they have the old like glasses that didn't quite transition to the beta lenses yet. Or the new lenses, I guess. And when they reach the pirate's den, Emika sees for herself that she is in fact at the top of the assassin's lottery at 5.625 million notes. And she's kind of pondering like why she's even on there, but Zero comes up with a theory that she made people lose a lot of money whenever she glitched into the games and all of that. There's also the whole, like, she's working for two different people and there could be people from both sides who are contributing money to getting her killed. Right. But when Amika is asking why Zero has brought her to the Pirate's Den, he said that they found a glitch that means that you can break into someone's brain during a game of Warcross if you're already linked up. So already doing the thing that we saw in Warcross where you can share thoughts and feelings without having to, like, find a way to communicate. It's just straight into each other's brains. Right. And so they get ready to have a duel in the Dark World. And I really liked the world that they were in. It was like a dragony environment. Yeah, like metal, almost like, not steampunk, but like armored dragons. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I liked that world. Yeah. I would have wanted to see more of that world because the whole point of the game isn't the game. It's so he can show her this virus, this hack. And he uses the glitch while they're playing to break into Mika's head. And then suddenly she's transported back to one of her worst memories back in the foster home that she was in. And basically she's so caught up in her memory that she can't like fight it deal with it but eventually zero tells her that if you want to leave your memory you have to be able to break into my brain and then we can leave but until you show me that you can do this we're not going to leave right and she ends up entering the memory of sasuke in a room basically by himself sort of huddled in a corner with a symbol on his sleeve and a scarf on his neck from the day that he was taken. Zero almost instantly breaks her out of his memory, and they're suddenly back in the pirate's den, where their game of Warcross is over, she lost, he won, and no one in the audience was able to see their memories. Yeah. And when they make it all the way back to the actual real world, Amika tries to press Zero for information about his memory and why it is the way that it is, but all he does is ask her questions about her memory in return, so they're both like, well, we're not going to talk about this then. Right. It's like, we're not getting any headway. There's no reason for us to do anything more than what we've already done today. Like, lesson over. Basically. And when Amika is finally left alone in her hotel room, she calls Tremaine and gives him a screenshot of Sasuke's memory and asks him to look up information on the symbol from his sleeve. 
they end up agreeing to meet up after the rematch where they can talk more freely. And then she calls the Phoenix Riders and they make a plan to help her get into the dome for the rematch so she can have access to Hideo, who will also be at the rematch. Right. And their plan was basically Hammy provides a distraction and Mika like sneaks in. Yeah. And that's about it. And it worked. It almost didn't work, but it ends up working. Yeah. And Ash turns off the cameras in the Phoenix Riders waiting room. So that's where Amika sets up shop to pull up all the security cameras. And she ends up managing to find her way to work past security to get into the cameras in the private box, which is where Hideo and other people from his company are discussing things. And she kind of overhears some bad crap between Hideo, his friend Ken, and this girl named Marie who works for the company. Uh, I was going to say it's Mari, probably. Is it Mari? Yeah, because it's Japanese. It's just, You're probably right. It's just M-A-R-I, I think, so Mari. But they're discussing the suicides that have been happening since the algorithm has been in place, and Mari wants to take down the algorithm until they figure out what's causing it, fix it, and then do the new version. The thing that makes sense. Ken absolutely does not want to do that whatsoever. He's like... It's not the algorithm's fault, whatever. It doesn't make people want to die. Let's move on. And his argument basically is like, the criminals are the ones that are killing themselves. Who cares? Right. Basically. And Hideo decides that they are actually going to investigate, but that they're going to keep using the algorithm Until while they point. investigate. Right. Which seems like a CEO decision, does it not? Oh yeah, 100%. And Emika also overhears even more distressing news, which is that there are countries that are trying to bribe Hideo into changing what the algorithm considers a crime in their country. So like loosening the reins on the algorithm in their countries. And it's like, yikes. Because the algorithm is supposed to be like this good thing that can't be corrupted. But the person who controls the algorithm can obviously be corrupted. Yeah, I was going to say, it's supposed to, like you would think you would probably just kind of uh, keep it completely secret, you know. So that there's not that problem. Well, but I feel like if people know about the algorithm, they're going to assume it comes from Hideo because he's the one who controls their tech. But this part of the conversation, this next part, I actually like that she overhears. And it's that Ken thinks that Amika is the reason that Hideo is investigating the suicides and not just letting it go. And he seems to think that the breakup between the two of them is influencing his actions. And he, like, pulls up multiple times where he's like, but you were really mopey on this day and you keep bringing her up and all of this. And, like, if he knew Emika could hear that conversation, he would be so embarrassed. Yeah. And she could. And that was the best part about it. Because it also kind of gives the reader a warmer and fuzzier feeling about Hideo, seeing how the breakup has impacted him emotionally. Right. Which I would think that wouldn't be possible given the way that book one ends and how the second one started. But I actually was kind of feeling bad for Hideo. Like, you didn't want to break up, but you did. I didn't feel bad for him. I did say kind of. In the end, Hideo dismisses Ken because he doesn't seem to care about wanting to do things well. I was going to say right, but this isn't right at all. But doing things well. Yeah. He, he doesn't care that it's, like, subpar or whatever. Right, right. He's one of those situations where it's, like, if we admit we did something wrong, then we have to admit we're doing the thing. So it's, like, why would we do that? Right. I think that's more of where Ken's stance is. Like, he's looking at it from the business perspective. Yeah. But towards the end of the chapter, Amika hears Hideo and Mari 
discussing the fact that Hideo is kind of expecting Sasuke's kidnappers to turn themselves in because of the algorithm. And that's the real reason for doing it, not just to prevent things like this from happening in the future, but to actually find out what happened. Right, which is kind of what my thought was as soon as I heard about the algorithm. I'm like, I know exactly why he's doing this. That was when Emika realized that if she can find whoever took Sasuke, then she might be able to convince Hideo to get rid of the algorithm altogether. Right. But then it's the end of the rematch. The Phoenix Riders have won. So Emika goes to meet up with Tremaine and the rest of the Phoenix Riders to discuss that symbol that she was asking him about. Yeah, during the celebration. Yeah, which is pretty good cover. Yeah. So there, Tremaine introduces Amika to his contact, Jesse. But before they're willing to tell Amika what the symbol from Sasuke's sleeve means, they want to know why she wants the information. Right. Which is the first sign that this is dangerous. Right. Like, what are you getting yourself into? Right. So she breaks down the situation for Jesse and everyone else. And it turns out that the symbol actually came from a work ID. And the work ID comes from the Japan Innovation Institute of Technology, which just so happens to be where Sasuke's mother worked before she retired. Right. And they're looking at a staff photo when Hammy also notices a doctor named Dr. Taylor in the photo and is like, is this the same one as the one you met with? Right. The dots get connected. And it turns out that it is. And so the group has to come up with a plan for how Amika can meet up with Hideo. And since he invited the Phoenix Riders to a formal party at a museum, she decides she's going to go and meet up with him there. Yeah, in the team vehicle, basically. Yeah, that's her cover for getting in. Yeah. Because the vehicles are automated. Which would be really cool. Yeah. Though, as you can see... Not great for security. No. So afterward, Amika catches up with Tremaine outside of the party, and you get a lot of Tremaine's history and background and, like, his background with Roshan, and I felt like that made him a more believable character, and, like, I understood him better. Yeah, that's 100% the goal of that scene, is to really get you to grasp that he's kind of a normal human being. Right. And he was put in a really crappy spot. Yeah. So, And while they're having that conversation, they also share a map of the Japan Innovation Institute of Technology and agree to go snooping the next night after she meets up with Hideo. Yep. But when Amika makes it back to her hotel room, Dr. Taylor is waiting for her and she makes some, like, vague threats. And that's when we get her backstory as well during this confrontation. I was going to say, she's, the threats aren't very vague. They're definitely directed towards her, but, like, she's like, I don't have enough information to do these things yet. But, like, I don't know. It, it was definitely meant to be threatening. Well, for sure. And around that time, we also find out that Amika is going to be one of the top ten Warcross players playing in the closing ceremonies, which I expected because, of course. Yeah. She was written into the written into the wild card group in the first place, so why right. wouldn't she be in the top ten also being written in? But the next night, Hammy and the rest of the Phoenix Riders are getting ready with Amika for the big like event. And Amika rides on her own in the Phoenix Riders car, gets there, and she's got some virtual masking in order to make it harder for other people 
to see her because technically she's classified as like a cheater for the hack in the original final. But when Mika gets Hideo alone to tell him about finding Sasuke, even after seeing the photo of him, Hideo thinks Amika is lying and trying to... Play him, basically, yeah, and try to him. play out his emotions. And and he keeps asking her who she's working for and why is she hunting him and all this other stuff. So he's very on his guard. But she basically says she refuses to tell him anything else until they're in a safer spot to talk, so he agrees to meet the next night at midnight. Which I didn't get to, sadly. No, you do not. Not until the second half. <laughs> And after the event, she goes back to the hotel, changes into her usual bounty hunting gear, and meets up with, well, she's getting ready to meet up with Tremaine, and she's messaging him, but he's not responding, so she assumes that he's asleep or just not responding. So she goes to the Japan Institute. By herself. Yeah. And she notices there are cars in the parking lot, lights are on, she's like, this is not going to be easy. Right. But then Jax is leaving with some bodyguards to go out to one of the cars. The other bodyguards eventually break off to go back inside. So that's her moment to get in. And she ends up slipping into the building behind them and finds Zero and Taylor in part of the building working on something. When she thinks she sees Zero walk through a wall, but then he's controlling a robot and something is just weird here. Yeah, there's something awry. What is it? We don't know. And after Amika watches them working with some tech, Jax ends up bringing Tremaine in. So that's where he was, and that's why he wasn't responding. Right. Jax ends up shooting Tremaine. In the head. And as Amika is in a rush to leave to save herself, Jax ends up catching her. And this is where Jax grows on you really fast. Yes, because it seems like Jax is trying to avoid having Amika seen by anyone else so that Amika doesn't have to get shot to. Right. And she's telling Amika how to get back to the hotel safely without being seen, and Amika is just confused. And she's like, you just shot my friend. Yeah. And Jax ends up saying that she only grazed Tremaine with that shot. But still, that's in the head. You grazed him in the head. That could be very bad. Yeah. But she also says that his body is being taken by one of the automated cars to the hospital and that's when it comes out that zero isn't the head of the black coats and it's taylor and for me this wasn't a shock because i never thought he was in control of the black coats. i i thought he was until i met taylor as soon as i met taylor in the hotel room i was like she's the boss like you could just tell she carried herself differently and she let zero lead the conversation but at the same time like I'm a manager. I let people lead conversations with people all the time that I don't want to talk to. So it's like, it's kind of normal. Plus of just how much older she is. Yeah. But also, I never thought any of them necessarily were the head because like, if you're the head of a major organization, do you go to all these meetings? Like, I don't feel like you would. No. So I never really thought it was him. So this wasn't a shock to me. But Jax tells Amika that she's going to send an invite to the Dark World to Amika later once they're clear of all this mess and safe. So Amika ends up making it back to the hotel. She cleans up, and that's when Jax eventually sends the request to link up in the Dark World so they can discuss everything. Right. And I feel like that's a lot of stuff to happen in half a book. Yeah. It's definitely moving at a faster pace than the previous book was. Like, at least I feel that way anyways. I think you're right. I also think this part, at least, of this book is grittier than the last book was. Yeah. Which I enjoyed. 
Me too. But so far, I'm loving the book. I'm ready to finish off the second half so that we can talk about it next week. I do like that Amika is still trying to think for herself and not just, like, push her loyalties one person to another. Back and forth because that's who she's currently dealing with, and it's just a wishy-washy decision-making process. Because I feel like it's very easy to say, Hideo's doing this horrible thing. You must work with the other side in order to But they're up to something suspicious, too, so maybe we don't trust them either. Yeah, so I like that she's thinking for herself and not just letting her loyalty switch side because of what happened in book one. Right. I can agree with that. But obviously next week we will talk about wrapping up that book and then probably discuss shortly what I will be reading next, which I'm very excited to announce, but we're not there yet. Yes. But we'll catch you guys on Tuesday. And make sure you're staying connected with us on all of our social media, which will be linked in the show notes. Bye, guys. Bye.